Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Literacy View. This is a really um, special guest we have on with us today. I just want to say I just got back from a trip to Florida an hour ago, but Judy Boxner, my co-host, said to me, Faith, we have to get Matthew Burns on the show because this article is just going viral. And so I said, what do you want? I'm in Florida. And she said, you're coming home, right? I said, yes. And here we are. Faith's <laughs> you know, husband wasn't so happy, but hopefully he'll forgive her. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here we go. The article is Benchmark Assessment System, Reading Test is Widely, widely Used and Often Wrong. And it was in um, APM Reports, and it was written by Christopher Peak, and it just came out yesterday. So this is hot off the press. And um, we have Matt Burns on, Dr. Matt Burns, and he is a professor at the University of Florida, and he is a special education professor, and he was the very first person to really do an independent study of the Fontes and Pinnell benchmark assessment. So to give people a little bit of background, this is an assessment that is used in many schools across the country. Uh, children are tested at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the year usually. And it takes quite a bit of time for each student to be assessed. And the assessment is on a gradient system from letters A to Z. Many parents know because they received letters um, that their children are reading at a letter L, a letter M, a letter C. Um, and this has been found to be um, an inaccurate assessment. So in the article, it says here that um, Matthew Burns, a University of Florida special education professor who conducted the first peer-reviewed study of the BAS, that is the benchmark assessment system, said that until he decided to try, the test had never been independently validated to see how closely its results aligned with other assessments of early reading. One of his studies showed that the BAS was able to distinguish between proficient and struggling readers only about half the time. The odds were little better than chance. And he said, this is a quote, so I could buy this test, train all my teachers to give it, take about 30 minutes per kid, Burns said, or really just have a teacher flip a coin for every kid, and they'll get it right just as often. So Matt, could you please talk about that quote? Because you said this a while ago, and I put up your study on my page a very long time ago, and I just reshared it because it's relevant now. So it would be great if you could um, just elaborate on that. Yeah, so uh, I, I did the study um, with some students. And basically, I, I knew very little about this, the benchmark assessment system. It was, uh, I, I do research at instructional level. That's how I became interested. So whenever something comes out that claims it assesses a kid's instructional level, I tend to look at it. And literally that study 
came because I was I got the, the manual and I was I was reading through it. And on page nine or something, I, I forget the page number, it says this test can be used to screen kids for reading problems. Well, that's interesting. That's I didn't know that. And then it hit me. Well, duh, it's called benchmark assessment system. It's a screener. Okay, so I didn't see any data anywhere in that entire manual, anywhere in that entire test to, to support that claim. So my students and I decided to get together and we we went to a school district in, in Minnesota and, and just worked with them to collect the data. Now I had no I had no preconceived idea. I'd read, I've, I tried to see if there were other research out there uh, uh, about it. I couldn't find any. So I really had no idea what to expect. For all I knew, it was a great test. Well, needless to say, when we came back and we did, we tested with uh, about 900 kids in second and third grade. And what we found was that among the kids who, who our criterion was the measures of academic progress, the MAP, the MAP for reading. So among the kids who did well on that, there were 556 of them. Uh, 367 of them did well on the benchmark assessment system, which is 66%. So think of it like a grade. Uh, 66%, well, I guess that's passing, but you know, it's not great. Um, it's like a D. So then we looked at the kids who didn't do on the map, and there are 290 of them. Of the 290 kids who didn't do on the map, only 90 of them didn't do well on the FNP, which is 31%, which is really, really low. At the time, the lowest I'd ever seen. So then the overall correct classification, it got it right 54% of the time. And that's when it hit me like 54%, that's that's flipping a quarter. So this test costs thousands of dollars, takes hours, well, it takes a lot of time to train, takes weeks to administer for a whole class, or I could spend, give each teacher a quarter and do just as well. So that's really what, where, where that came from. Again, I didn't really have any idea going in what this would what this would find. And when we saw 54%, we realized, oh, this is anything that's chance or worse is not is not a good test. Now, the good news is for me, because I have to admit, I was really worried about this when we first published it. You know, although not really, and I, I could talk about that in a second. But when we publish something in an academic journal, you know, I think it's read a couple hundred times. You're pretty excited. So I thought they would, this would never, no one would ever really see this. It'd be the end of it. But I was still kind of nervous because I was the only one who studied this and it found this negative result. Well, since two more studies, one published in 2020, oh, both, both just came out, 2023. Both found diagnostic accuracy, one using STAR as the criterion uh, that ranged from 46% to 53%. So, you know, about the same. And the other found, oh, I'm sorry, not uh, sensitive, we found identifying kids who are struggling 30% of the time using the state test as the criterion. So now we've got three studies that all found pretty similar results. That this, the, the diagnostic accuracy of this tool is just not what the publishers uh, claim it should be, or at least what it should be. A test purported to do a particular task should have evidence to support the, the, that it can do that task. And this has three studies now that show it doesn't do that very well. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty shocking because as the article stated, it takes a long time mm -hmm. to administer this assessment. So Judy Boxner, you are very familiar with this assessment. So am I. Um, tell us some of your thoughts about 
giving this assessment and some of the things that you saw on a personal level with how children respond um, as far as the letter and um, does it, you know, match up with what was expected? All right. So there was a time in my life that running records were the love of my life. <laughs> I slept with them because I was a reading recovery teacher. I really was into data at that point. So I used to carry them around and carry them on the Metro North um, and so forth. Do you still hear me? Yes, I do. Yeah, let's make okay. sure all, all of us could be heard. You okay. hear me? <laughs> yeah, I do. So I was in love with running records to the point that at some point in my career, um, there was an organization that was willing to adopt one of the buildings that I supported. And the first purchase we made at that point were BAS boxes because I didn't want children reading photocopied versions that I saw, uh, black and white versions. And that's what we purchased. And at that point in my career, I saw lots of value to a running record. The things that seemed valuable at that point were you got to listen to a kid read, right? You got to hear what they sound like. You got to see what they do when they get to uh, a word that they couldn't decode. The problem with running records and what I did see in buildings were, A, they didn't follow a scope and sequence. B, a lot of kids, we were looking at so many different things. Um, you could see what, what what a teacher was teaching. Some teachers didn't teach kids to look at visual print. Maybe they taught kids to look at the picture and, and you could quickly see that. Um, the other thing that I saw, many teachers weren't actually testing to the hard level. They were just doing it for compliance purposes and their rating was attached to it. So that was kind of like crazy too. So here was a tool that was probably designed to just listen to kids read and Probably it wasn't, you know, supposed to be used to to attach a rating. And now it was becoming personal and teachers were like overwhelmed doing a thousand of these records, not looking at the errors that kids were making. They were just doing it to get it done, getting independent level and then maybe one instructional level. But in reading recovery, we were taught. That kids could actually have multiple. Judy, could you explain? Yeah. I'm sorry. Could you explain? a little bit about frustration and yeah. some people yeah. probably don't even know what that means. That's a good point. So independent level was when a child could successfully read. Usually with the BAS system, it was 95% or higher in terms of accuracy, right? And very often teachers would get to a 95 and say, oh, that's it. That's their independent level. Some teachers wanted to actually show projected growth what, that, that they did miracles. So they would stop early. And then, oh, a miracle happened. They were at a level A and now they're at a level M. Mazel tov. Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, I mean, do I think the tool was the worst thing in the world for me as a reading specialist when I was working with kids one-on-one? -on -one? It wasn't the best tool, but it was delightful to listen to kids read and see what they're doing. But I would have preferred if it followed a scope and sequence. And you know what? Now I fell in love with the cadence and the oral reading fluency, which gives me very, very research and evidence-based information quickly. 
And I can, I'm not wasting instructional time. If I'm a classroom teacher, I'm getting a lot of information and it gives me a pulse. Maybe I need to go further. Maybe this kid is having difficulty. I think running records, there was not enough norming. One teacher was marking contractions one way. Another teacher was marking contractions a different way. I just think that there was too much room for error, too much instructional time wasted, not enough focus on uh, looking at words and the visual print and learn, you know, teaching kids to decode well. I think there's better tools out there. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, the truth yeah. of, but, the, but the truth of the matter is, guess what? A lot of schools say they're SOR aligned, not my building, but they still have them in there sprinkled in there. Greenwich, Connecticut still has them sprinkled in there and they're having a convention for the science of reading and all these wonderful things that they're doing, but they're still leveling kids. And you know how I know? Because when I work with my clients on Saturday and Sunday, oh, Miss Judy, I moved up a level. Yeah. So, all right. So um, I think you said a lot right there. And um, I I'd like to hear from Matt, about some of the things that Judy mentioned in terms of the time that it takes and how the assessment was being used and how it was tied to, you know, a teacher, um, you know, rating and uh, how that could um, leave a lot of room for error, even if this tool was doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, um, that's problematic. But then she also mentioned about using an oral reading fluency and how you could get so much more from that in a much faster way. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So my one of my I have several issues with BAS, one of which is the score. It, we put too much emphasis on the score. It's the score that's unreliable. It's the score that it, it has questionable decision making. Let's have, I'm a reading interventionist. If I go work with a kid, the first thing I'm going to do is have them read to me from a grade level text. I want to see what they, everything you just listed a second, Judy. I want to see that. I want to hear it. I want to see it for myself. So, so again, I think the better alternative is something like Acadians, which is free to buy and um, to, to, to get. Uh, and in my opinion, you get the same type of information that I value and I think teachers value. Now, when we look at the score. I'll come back to your cadence in a second. Look at the score. Um, I remember I said 290 kids didn't do well on the map, but of those 290 kids, 200 of them did well on the FP. So, what if those 200 kids did well because the teachers wanted them to do well? Now, I'm not saying they're cheating. Don't hear me say that. Uh -huh. I'm saying that there is bias and error in every measure we give. And I, I'm hypothesizing, I've not tested this. I'm hypothesizing that the Fontas and Pinnell has some quite a bit of subjectivity to it. And so if I want a kid to do well without meaning so, they might do better than they really should. Then what's an accurate score? Every test has a standard error of measure. We computed it for the BAS a couple of years ago with, with published data, that, uh, the reliability data that they published, which I think is an overestimation of the reliability. We can talk about that in a minute. But then also um, other data we had around standard deviation, et cetera, computed the standard error of measure. And the standard error of measure is plus or minus two. So Judy, if a kid comes one day and says, you know, they were an E, and the next day they're they a G, isn't it great? I went up two. That's the standard error of measure. So an, an E, 
I'll, I'll use that number. Or, I'm sorry. I'll start with F. F is plus or minus two. So F is a D to an H. So you give that kid to test 100 times, they're going to score between D and H, you know, 95% of the time. And they'll get, uh, but F is their actual score. Now, in a week or two weeks or a month or six months, we give the kid the test again, they get a J. And you say, well, if we F to a J, that's great. Well, remember, J is plus or minus two. So J goes down to H, up to L. So because F and J, their standard errors of measure overlap, psychometrically, those two scores are the same. So the kid going from an F to a J is probably measurement error. It's not really growth. Definitely a kid goes up by one. That is, that's, that's going up by one is like throwing dice. Uh, that's, that's, that's those, those scores are exactly the same. Now, come back to Acadians. When the scores you get from Acadians are much more reliable, and, and Barrett at all in the paper that just came out. The accuracy today. score for something like the cadence or, or the oral reading fluency. Does anybody know? What is it? I'm sorry. Does anybody know what the accuracy score? Obviously, it's not like yeah. throwing water in the air. It must be much higher. Yeah. Well, well, the study they did that Barrett at all did just came out in remedial and special ed found um, uh, about 70. Wait. Yeah. 70, 71 percent. And they in Ames Web, a similar system, Clean Bio et al. found um oh shoot, they don't report the overall correct. So I have to compute it. Um yeah, it's generally higher. I the study I did, we looked at Fontes and Pinnell and we looked at Ames Web, and we found about 80%. So it's it's much, it's much better. I'd like it to be a little higher than that, to be honest, but but it's 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 pretty good. But what they did, what Barrett et al. did is is they did a smart thing, they did a cost analysis. And so looking at very detailed cost analysis formula, they concluded Acadians cost about $30 per kid per year. Uh, giving star reading cost about $23 per kid per year. Okay. Giving benchmark assessment system, the F&P, it was $131 per kid per year. Why? So for a fraction of the cost, I get better data, and I still get the data teacher's value. I still... Want to hear the kid read, see what he does when he comes to a word he doesn't know. I still get all that by downloading something for free off of a website and not and not spending thousands of dollars to purchase it. So I could tell you, I having spoken to teachers, they don't feel that this is enough. They'll always say, so what do you use for comprehension? Yes, and that's even, a big one, Faith. And even after they do all these types of, you know, benchmark assessments, they feel that there still needs to be something else for comprehension. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is the maze and the days and the retail. Mm -hmm. So, um, which for those people listening, it's sort of like a passage where there are words left out and children can use the context to be able to choose um, the appropriate word if they're understanding what they're reading. And then, of course, retail is just telling back what they read is to see if they could remember a lot of, um, you know, details about uh, the passage. So they're still looking for something more, Matt, than this, which tells me that maybe um, teachers don't really understand how ORF um, correlates with, um, you know, a comprehension score that, that, you know, it's, it's 
really fluency and comprehension are very much aligned. Your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, so I, I have a couple of things. I did a study, uh, two studies, and somebody else, and I'm sorry, I don't know the citation, did a, a study very similar to what I did, and we all three found basically the same results. In elementary school, if a child doesn't read around 50 to 60 words a minute, they're usually not going to comprehend. We saw that consistently. That really, that cutoff really consistently predicted comprehension. So if a kid's reading less than uh, 40 words a minute, if a kid's reading less than 60 words a minute, like for example, kids reading 40 words a minute, yeah, I want to assess comprehension, but that's really not my instructional target. My instructional target is going to be fluency or the decoding deficit that might be causing the low fluency. So that's one point. Another point is, like you said, actually, this is a, a, a famous study by Lynn Fuchs and her colleagues, looked at three measures, um, a, a measure of oral reading fluency and two measures of reading comprehension. Oral reading fluency correlated better with each measure of comprehension than those two measures of comprehension correlated with each other. Oral reading fluency actually is a pretty decent proxy of how well a kid comprehends. Now, Teachers are going to hear that and push back immediately, and they're not wrong. They're not wrong. But here's the thing. Remember purpose of assessment. When I talk about intervention frameworks or assessment instructional frameworks, I generally focus on three purposes of assessment. Uh, screening, which kids need help. Diagnostic, once you identify which kids need help, what do you do? And progress monitoring. Is a kid getting better? I think teachers value the diagnostic data because that really tells them you know, what do they do to help the kids? The BAS, as it's used usually, and AmesWeb and Acadians and Dibbles, those function as screeners. They have one job to tell you, does the kid need help? Now, you can use them to monitor progress too. That's a different conversation. You could, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they, they tell you, does the kid need help? It doesn't tell you what help the kid needs. Mm -hmm. The type of data you need to address the screening question have to be rigorous, good reliability, well-established criteria. The data you collect to determine what type of help, help the kids need, you got a lot more flexibility there. So if a teacher has a kid who's struggling, or not even struggling, just instructionally, and they want to look and see comprehension to help drive instruction, that's a whole other type of assessment. And whatever they use for that is probably just fine. Also keep in mind, if they're using STAR or, or um, MAP, those two are very comprehension loaded. So if they're using star map and like dibbles boy they've got they've got all the data they, they really need to dive in so i do think we underestimate the, the utility of we both underestimate and overestimate we underestimate the utility of, of the accuracy of oral reading fluency as a screener and then we try and overestimate its diagnostic utility which it doesn't it doesn't have much so yeah once you see a kid needs help in the area in which he needs help yeah, I use uh, phonics de uh, uh, decoding inventories quite a bit with probably yep. little established reliability, but they're fine. Um, I'll use the um, easy CBM reading proficiency measure, which is a comprehension CBM. You know, that you can dive in and, and use whatever measure you need. But to identify a screening, but to make a screening decision, I need reliable data. I need rigorous criteria and well-researched processes. So, you know, Judy, you were nodding and you know recognizing the different assessments so i think you know i know as a coach one of the things that i noticed that teachers as matt said look at a score or a letter and 
that's kind of the end of the conversation where really the conversation begins with, well, how many errors did the kid make? Because if they're making a lot of errors, then obviously there's a decoding problem. If they're making very few errors, but they read slowly, that's a true fluency problem. How do you go about it in your school explaining the difference in how to look at this as a coach? Because I know that's something that I've done as a coach. I'd like to know, um, hearing from you, when you have conversations with teachers, how do you talk about the information so they're just not looking at a letter or a cutoff score? So basically, I'm pretty lucky. You know, I don't do running records anymore. I can't even believe that I'm saying that even with my private clientele, I don't do running records anymore. I have switched over to using a cadence, my oral reading fluency. And just like, um, Dr. Burns said, I now use other things when I have to go deeper. If I see some comprehension issues and I want to dive deeper, I take out my IR, IRT, informal reading inventory, where I go deeper and do more passages and look deeper. So I think that I'm lucky in that way. But when I, you know, when my team was doing running records, many schools were like transitioning to uh, align more with the science. I really tried in the initial stages to like really shift those conversations, not to look at, oh, how many errors. Let's look at exactly what the child is doing, right? Let's look at what kind of words. But that's very hard to do with a running record because it doesn't follow a scope and sequence, right? It doesn't align with your foundations or, you know, what you're doing in your phonemic awareness block. So I I think that there was value in listening to kids, but I would, I would actually challenge people to maybe do running records or reading records with decodable text and listen to kids because now you might get some interesting information. Oh, that kid is having with trouble with phrasing and fluency, which is probably impacted by, oh, difficulty, you know, decoding vowel teams and so forth. So I think the key when we're talking about what kids are doing is to shift into what skills kids need instead of just saying they're a level because kids are so much more than just a level. And, you know, the sad truth is, and I went to one professional development, I think it was um, with Peter DeWitt. He made a really good point. Levels are very often like a kid would be at the same level over and over again for a very long time because a either the teacher didn't know how to do them well, they didn't progress monitor often, and it was almost and then they were getting under instructed, and then they were only shopping for books at a certain level because maybe the teacher was overwhelmed, or maybe the teacher only did book shopping once a month. The truth is, it was like a roach motel. Some kids were stuck at this level for such a long time. And once you're stuck at a level or labeled, and think about how did a kid feel going to shop from the level A basket? That's not a lot of fun, right? When your friends see that wasn't the way it was supposed to be and things got very, went very wrong. The only thing that did bother me a little bit about the article, and I think it was a missed opportunity I don't think the article got specific enough. For me, getting specific is very important. And the article mentioned that, you know, the running record um, wasn't an effective tool um, to diagnose dyslexia in a student. And I get that, right? It's, you know, it's it, it that running records are not reliable in terms of um, diagnosing or screening for dyslexia at all. 
But I had, you know, I know in the early levels, level A was ridiculous. It was the same book over and over again. Kids saw that book like 70 times, maybe 80 times. They memorized it. I would even say levels A to Z were like absolutely useless. But, you know, so this child in this article, what grade did they say that that child was? Uh, We're talking about, let me see, was it second grade? So Um, I wish they would have gotten a little bit more specific because, you know, what? the honest truth is if a kid got past like the FGHI, there was more reading involved. I can't imagine that a kid could have memorized that whole book. So, yes, they were probably decoding some words based off of meaning. And, yes, there's more pictures in that. But I can't imagine that a kid was memorized. But let's go back to what um, Matt said. It's not cost effective. Let's. The bottom line is, if you That's could do true, something but, but fast, that makes sense. But but the article stated that that they missed the boat on diagnosing something. Now, how did this child who potentially had dyslexia was able to read passages that it didn't look like a red flag to to the teacher? I want to know more about that, and I I don't think that the article went enough in depth about that. Is that fair? So there's a great documentary called The Truth About Reading by Nick Nanton. Yes. Oh, it's so good. And he takes a couple people. I was in that, Matt. Oh, were you really? Yes, I Yeah, go Faith. (laughs) That's how I, like, I could have sworn we met. Okay, (laughs) that's how how I've, uh, I'm in it too. Um, I could have sworn we'd met. That's so funny. That's why. Anyway, um, uh, but That's he awesome. takes, yeah, but he takes um, a couple of people and they explain how they do it, how they read without able to sound out sound out the words. It's really fascinating. That was a, a big that was a big learning uh, experience for me. So I would yeah, I would like to see him talk more about that. But but the problem with leveling, there's my advisor Jim Tucker used to always say there's no right way to do the wrong thing. We have to get past leveling. I had this when I was doing a study. Um, we had kids read from their books. So if the book, if the F&P said they were an M, they read an M book. <clears throat> we found was, that's not the point I'm about to make. What we found was the good readers, they they read really, really well. So they might have been able to read even higher up. We don't know. Of but course. The low, readers, yeah, the low readers couldn't read the books that were supposedly at their level. About, about almost two-thirds of them couldn't read the book that was at their level. So to me, that's such a big, big problem. But, 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 the, but while doing that study, um, I was sitting with kids and having to read to me, read from level books. And, and we spent, you know, several days on this. And one guy came up, a little boy came up in <clears throat> second or third grade and said, uh, I, we were done or something. He got to go pick out a book. He walks over and they, it wasn't, it wasn't bins for some reason. It was a, like a bookshelf, like a, you know, like a library, a, a, a classroom library. And he grabbed a book off the shelf. And I don't remember what it was about. I truly don't, but let's say it was dinosaurs. Well, I said, Oh, dinosaurs. I love dinosaurs. And he looked, and there was a sticker on the back. And the sticker said M. He went, oh, M. I'm a, I'm a J and put it back. Yeah, that's terrible. We're so all upset by that. Like, yeah. that's the problem. That's one of the problems. That is such a problem. Now, first of all, let's assume for J and M, I don't remember the exact letters, but they were close like that. Those were close enough that were in the standard area of measures. The kid probably could have read that book, no problem. Number one. Number two, even if we did, 
even if it wasn't, if J meant something, and this book was actually, or this kid was actually a J, and this book was actually an M, given his excitement, I'm willing to bet his background knowledge and vocabulary was strong enough that he could have read that book that was actually above his level. So we should, and, and you know, Tim Shanahan talks about this all the time. We should be challenging kids to read text that goes above their level. Uh, their supposed level. So, so we have to get away from, from levels and really focus on what kids can and can't read. Judy, you mentioned skills. Yeah, we are small group instruction. I talk a lot about this now. Small group instruction should be based on skill, not level. Mm-hmm. I've seen too many classrooms where they get the M's together and the L's together, whatever. They, they read a book together and discuss it. And that's their small group instruction. Well, I, in, in a, not a debate, a conversation with a, a teacher recently, um, she showed me her data and she was showing me how important the FMP data were. And so I just grabbed a chunk of data from the middle. And so I've got two kids here, a bunch of data. Uh, you can't see it, but I'll read it to you. Both these kids were an FMP level of G. Okay. And this, this school used the MAP, the FMP, and Dibbles. So for MAP, this kid, I'll pick one. This kid was reading, one kid was reading at the 73rd percentile for MAP, reading 80 words a minute, 98% correct. Another kid was at the first percentile for MAP, 26 words a minute, 84% correct. Both are level G. They don't have the same skill. They don't have the same needs. So instead, I'm going to look at those data, MAP, Dibbles, and accuracy. I agree, whoever said that, Judy, you did. Accuracy data are key, are key for diagnostic decisions. So that one kid was reading, you know, um, if I have two kids who are similar fluencies, but one's reading 84% of the words correctly, and one's 95%. I'm going to focus on different things during small group instruction. Yeah. So really working with teachers to look at data they already have and really easy data to get if they don't and use those data to drive small groups. And we'll see much more success than anything we've ever done with levels. So leveling is, is, is just way too, it's too flawed. There's too many inherent things wrong with it. The only thing that I'm worried about though is, so you know, running records were around for a while and you saw teachers doing them. They desperately wanted to, you know, shift their data. Now, you know, a lot of teachers are just learning the science of reading, right? It's new to them. And they're not really as familiar with progress monitoring using something like Acadians as they should be. And my, my, my concern is that unfortunately, you know, in the field, I'm not seeing as much progress monitoring and listening to kids read as I'm used to or know, you know, shifting that needle is not so easy for a lot of kids and listening and setting small bite-sized goals to keep, you know, shifting things and seeing how they're doing is important. How do we make sure that we don't miss the boat now that, you know, we are shifting in this direction? It's still really imperative that we do hear kids reading and we do catch teachers up to speed with how to use those progress monitoring tools. If not, you know, Come, you know, next benchmark, your kids might have not moved as much as you thought they did. What I do think is good, though, is that, you know, something like a cadence doesn't just look at one piece. It looks at, you know, multiple different strands. So it gives you so much more information quickly, like phoneme segmentation fluency, uh, nonsense word fluency. So I think it's a great tool. But if you're not using it to progress monitor and not listening to kids read. That's problematic. Yeah, well, too. You know what? I think um, Judy makes a good point as far as teachers giving these assessments. And I've seen this before in, um, you know, different school districts where they have to give 
these benchmark assessments, but they really don't know how to look at them deeply. And so they're just doing it, as Judy said, because they have to do certain things. Um, but yet uh, they're not really understanding how you could go back to skills that maybe um, need to be worked on because they're not realizing that maybe there's an underlying problem and, you know, they should not be starting, let's say, with just working on fluency, that they really need to go back to maybe blending or segmenting or, you know, any word work that needs to be done that's not happening. So what would you suggest, Matt, in that case? Like how would you get teachers to look at the data um, carefully and to be able to kind of shift the needle as Judy's talking about to um, use it in a way that is really practical instead of just doing it. Because then it becomes just like a benchmark assessment. It becomes F and P. It's just another thing they have to do unless they're using it appropriately. So what would you suggest? So when uh, when we were doing, when MTSS, in 2004, response to intervention was included in, in federal special ed law. The MTSS came out of that. And for a while there, we were doing quite a bit of progress monitoring. I still think we are. But the point well taken, we didn't really work with teachers how to understand the data. And I, my, my own kid's teacher, who I won't say what great it was, she was fabulous and did such a great job with, with my kid. And was monitoring progress with um, curriculum-based measurement. And we had a meeting and she showed me the graph and he was over 90. He was in second grade. I thought, well, that's pretty good. And so I, and she said, so this is um, uh, CBM. She goes, I, I don't remember what that stands for. Well, I kind of chuckled myself. <laughs> but then she says, and I look at the graph and I'm like, wait a minute, this is, this is doing, he's doing really well. He's up over 90. Well, I later learned she was graphing percent read correctly, not orbit influency. So she had well intention. She used the, I'm sure she used data to make a decision, but she didn't know what to do with these data. Now I was doing a training one time. So here's why I think that that's the case. We have to help present, we have to help teachers interpret the data in a way that makes teaching better, in a way that helps them value the data. So I was doing a training many years ago with a group of second grade teachers showing how to use screening data to make small group instruction, uh, small group groups, et cetera. And I had a teacher at the end who, it, it was a second grade, the building was K2, so it was probably like 10 second grade teachers. And one second grade teacher sitting at the very end was sitting like with his head back, you know, not paying attention to a single word I said. He was retiring at the end of the year and quite literally didn't care what I had to say. Frankly, mm-hmm. wanted me to know. He didn't Been care. there, done that. <laughs> yes, exactly. But then, but then I showed him, I started talking about, okay, this means the kid needs this. And this means the kid means this. And, and I'll show him a couple of examples. It just so happened that the examples I was talking from were two kids in his classroom. And I concluded based on the data, these kids probably needed more phonemic awareness, even though they were in second grade. And I would assess that, et cetera, et cetera. And so while I'm having this conversation, he sat up and kind of leaned over a little bit, then turned to the director of special ed, who was sitting next to him, who told me this later. He said, now, how do you measure phonemic awareness? What do you do? So this teacher, because he all of a sudden realized, oh, wait, I can use these data to help my kids? Oh, that changes everything. So I think we always have to start there. 
I mentioned earlier, you know, in my opinion, you start with a good screener and assessments, then you do diagnostic, then you monitor progress. But man, I am often quick to jump to show teachers how to use diagnostic data because that's what they value. Get them proficient to that, and then we'll monitor progress and, and, and you know, work with them how to figure that out. So start with what the teachers value the most and really work with them to understand those data. And we also have to recognize they need support because this is not something you do on an everyday basis. So if you work with a team of teachers and then come back a month later, there's a good chance they've forgotten much of it. So they need lots of coaching. And, uh, you know, you look at the research actually done here in the state of Florida, looking at what makes um, good, what, what you know, what's some best ways to lead systems change in MTSS and, and reading first and all of those. It was always coaching, good coaching. And what was the one thing, the one topic that mattered the most? Could they coach teachers around data? So get good coaching, work with teachers to use the data in a way that they that they will value, that will make their, their jobs easier, help their kids more, start there, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So I'm going to get a little spicy now, Matt, before Great. we wrap We're up. going to get spicy. You have to get a little <laughs> spicy here. So in the article, it said here, um, Fontes and Pinnell's products have made Heinemann, that's the publishing company, tens of millions of dollars in revenue annually. A review of business filing shows. In 2012, Heinemann brought in around 123 million in sales, about half of which came from Fontes and Pinnell's products, according to a financial report from its parent company. Think is the parent company is HMH, Judy, is that correct? Think so. Trick question or the spicy question was for. Okay, <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. Right, yeah, so it's... after that, Heineken they are affiliated. They are affiliated, as far as I understand. I so, so, bottom line is everything is big business, right? Everything, right? And it says here every year after that, Heineken broke sales records until the pandemic snapped its growth streak in 2020. So Matt, Judy and I have had this conversation before that, you know, some of these programs, Heinemann, HMH, um, you know, it's it's a business. It's it's a business. The bottom line, it's a business. How does your research turn this around? How does it help schools? to make good decisions because clearly they really weren't looking at this carefully. If most schools purchase these benchmark assessments across the country and, and used it, they assumed that, you know, the research was done, especially when they keep seeing other schools buying it. It's just this assumption that, you know, it must be good and it was the golden ticket that 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 Fontes and Pinnell continuum was basically a lot of teachers' bibles. Right, right. So Matt, how how do we get schools that already spent lots of money on this BAS to you know now say, all right, maybe we shouldn't be using this. Maybe we're spending too much money getting substitute teachers to cover classes while teachers administer these assessments. Your thoughts? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it was, uh, again, many years ago, showing the results of this study before it was published, probably in the, in the district we collect the data. I don't, I don't remember for sure. And um, I showed him what to do instead. And so one teacher raised her hand and said, wait, but that's going to take me like 30 minutes. I said, well, yeah, probably an hour total, you know. And she said, but that's like an hour. Like, so you tell me, tell me, I take an hour, heck, two hours on the first day or two and be done? I can start teaching my kids on the like second day and not the second week? And she literally started to cry. And I'm not making that up. She really did. Um, I don't know. So you, you started to ask and, and went a slightly different direction. How does my, has my research, how does this research change it? Well, it doesn't. Here's why I say that. Again, having very little knowledge of Fontes and Pinnell or, or Heinemann or anything, went to the International Reading Association, which we now call uh, Literacy Association at the time was IRA. And I go into the conference and I walk down to the, what do you call it, the convention hall, the, the vendors, where all the vendors are, you know? And I walk in this giant room where there's hundreds of vendors. And on the other side of the room is this huge banner. It takes up the entire wall, basically, and says, Fontes and Pinnell. And you walk over and there's all these anecdotes and handing all these flyers of pictures with kids and teachers saying how great it is to help kids. And I remember thinking, my little study can't compete with this. No one's going to look at this and say, oh, specificity of, of 0.31. Ooh, ooh, or, or, sorry, sensitivity of 0.31. Oh, that's pretty bad. No, they're going to see it helped my kid. And that's all they're really, that's, that's, I think it's unfair of us to expect them to compete and look at the sensitivity and specificity of the data uh, compared to what they're seeing here. So I think we have to start having a culture where we really do become better consumers. The science of reading movement, I think if one thing comes out of it, it's got to be that we are skeptical skeptical consumers. We have to start asking more difficult questions. And I don't, I'm not saying, I don't think we need research. So I'm not saying don't buy something if research says it's bad. I'm saying don't buy something unless there's research saying it's good. Absence of research is still, is still a reason not to buy something, in, in my opinion. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. I think it's going to be a long time. I'm optimistic. For the first time in my career, this is the most optimistic I've been. I will say that, uh, that we're finally asking these questions and districts are, are paying attention. And we're starting to say, well, if it's 130 bucks per kid, why not spend 20 bucks per kid and get better data? Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Matt, that I also, um, I, you know, I've been teaching since 1986, and I really feel that this is a turning point. However, um, I do think that this, um, the power of Fontes and Pinnell um, is a mountain. It's, it's, it's a mountain to, to get over. It, it's just, you know, I think it's interesting that Christopher Pete um, chose the Fontes and Pinnell benchmark assessment to write about. And it just follows in their reporting with Emily Hanford on the Soul to Story, where a lot of it was, you know, Lucy Calkins. And it seemed like F and P were able to kind of get a pass because they just didn't respond. They just kept refusing to respond. But yep. I'm glad that they're being called out a bit because otherwise. It's really unfair to children and to teachers to have to spend their time on something, as you say, is as accurate as flipping a coin. Judy, any last thoughts or questions that you have that I didn't ask? Well, basically, my last thought is, you know, 
you know, schools really have to think about, are we really shifting to, you know, follow the research or are we doing it, a you know, a half-ass half, half job? You can't say, you know, <laughs> you, you want to, you know, shift and align yourself with the science and you're doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. If you're going in the direction of the science, just, you know, really start looking at those screeners. Give them a chance. Also, please, please, please don't forget, we still need to listen to kids read. We should be progress monitoring kids and also running records using decodable text. That could be a great informal thing to do, in the, especially for kids in the early stage, stages that are just trying to crack the code. And I think the other important thing is like, you know, Matt Burns said, you know, if you want it, you know, the screeners are just like a pulse check, right? You can go deeper with different diagnostics to get more information. They're your starting point and they give you information quickly and there's less loss of instructional time. So this is the time of year that everybody has to just really make sure we're intentional and have those kids read because if the application is missing, you're not getting very far. Good. Matt, did I uh, miss anything that you would want to add? Yeah, you know, I would encourage people to look at the National Center on Intensive Intervention. Uh, it's, their website is simply intensiveintervention.org. And they rate oh, nice. screeners. Yeah, they rate screeners. Uh, they don't rate the fonts of Penel because people have to put in for it to be rated. And the publishers, I'm sure, have no interest in this being rated because it would be rated poorly. And they don't need the rating. They're getting out, you know, we're making millions already. But they, they do go through and rate screeners. And they do it very simply, very straightforward, easy to follow. So if you're looking at the FMP and wondering if there are better alternatives uh, there's a good resource there to list list several possibilities. That's that's awesome. So that was intensiveintervention.org, intensiveintervention.org. Dr. Matthew Burns, we thank you for joining us. Um, this was a great discussion. This was, you are a good sport, you, last minute, um, you know, invitation and you hopped right on it. And uh, we appreciate that. Judy, let everybody know how they can reach us. We didn't even use a BS button today, Judy. I have my cheers button out. I have my okay, BS I button out. I'm going to give Matt a cheer. Yeah, me too. Here. Oh, <laughs> I know. I know I'm going to say my, you know, farewells um, to our viewers, but just also one, one recommendation to schools. If you're getting neuropsych reports that are saying that kids need and uh, an Orton-Gillingham based or, you know, program, don't do LLI, don't do, you know, uh, Fontes and Pinnell program, follow those neuropsych reports. It's really important. You know what I mean? Kids need to get the services that, you know, are research evidence-based and that are aligned to what's best for them. Okay. So also follow us at the literacy view real teachers letting loose on facebook follow us on our instagram page the literacy view follow faith at her page at high five literacy follow me at boxner damsky follow us on twitter faith is at high five literacy follow me at boxner damsky Please, 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 we're seeing all of you subscribe. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Literacy View. Also subscribe to our um, Apple Podcasts. Write us a review and keep sharing with your friends. We're getting a lot of new listeners. 
We're getting a lot of new teachers, administrators, researchers, parents. So keep it going. Sharing is caring. Thanks, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank again. you. Thank you. Good night. This is fun. Thanks.